few historians would deny that Nazi Germany's blitzkrieg across Western Europe in 1940 was anything other than spectacular. In almost all wars before, military campaigns were long, drawn-out affairs, often lasting years. But now, the motorized German army, the Wehrmacht, had achieved in a few weeks far in excess of even the German Kaiser of World War I, the almost complete occupation of Western Europe. But conquering a country is one thing, holding onto it is quite another. While much of the German leadership's attention was focused on fighting the Allied armies amassing on both fronts against them, many of the German and other Axis soldiers stationed in occupied Western countries like France, Belgium, and Holland reveled in the prospect of enjoying the spoils of war. As opposed to the fighting in North Africa or the brutal Eastern Front, prior to 1944, the German soldiers stationed in the West enjoyed good food, good wine, and the company of local women, all the while they were unaware that they were often being lured in by those brave men and women who refused to submit to Hitler's tyranny. In Holland, three young women would wage a secret war against their occupiers, using their innocent and youthful looks to lower their enemy's guard before they struck like a deadly black widow spider. They did not embrace leading their lives this way. They had no bloodlust, rather they simply did what had to be done in the name of freedom. This is their story. Welcome to Wars of the World. On September 16, 1920, Dutch teacher Peter Schaft and his wife Afje welcomed into the world their daughter, Janita Schaft. Known as Hanny, the little girl grew up with her parents in the city of Haarlem, the provincial capital of North Holland, where they led a relatively quiet life. At school, she was often teased by some of the other children because of her distinctive long reddish-brown hair, leaving her a generally shy student but at home with her parents, things were quite different. There, the family would regularly engage in intense discussions regarding current affairs and politics, and this bestowed on her a deep-rooted sense of right and wrong and concepts regarding justice. As she got older, she began to consider what career path she would like to take and decided that she wished to study law specializing in human rights, with her dream being eventually to work for the League of Nations, a forerunner to today's United Nations. Not long after she started her degree at the University of Amsterdam, Europe was again plunging into war, but for Hanny and her fellow classmates, there was initially little concern that the fighting would include them in any meaningful way. During the First World War, Holland, under the stewardship of Queen Wilhelmina, along with several other European nations, declared themselves neutral in the conflict, and this successfully kept them out of the fighting. As Britain and France declared war on Germany on September 3rd, 1939, 
following Hitler's invasion of Poland, Queen Wilhelmina, who was still on the throne, again declared Holland's neutrality, believing this would protect them from the war. This time, she was wrong. On May 10th, 1940, Holland was swept up in a German blitzkrieg as tanks and aircraft stormed through the Dutch border, while German paratroopers made an ultimately unsuccessful attempt to capture the Queen. The small Dutch army was woefully ill-equipped to fend off the German forces, and despite a brave, stubborn resistance, they were soon in retreat. The final nail came when the German Luftwaffe bombed Rotterdam on May 14th, killing up to 900 people and destroying some 25,000 homes. Under the threat of more bombings, the Dutch government surrendered, and Holland had fallen. Initially, very little changed for Hanny and her fellow countrymen, and in fact, initially, it would even prove prosperous. Austrian Nazi Arthur Seizinkart was appointed leader of the Netherlands, effectively ruling the country, and he initially adopted a velvet glove approach in an effort to quash resistance. Instead of the brutal crackdowns, such as in Poland and Czechoslovakia, Dutch businesses and companies were employed in the manufacture of war material for the campaign against Great Britain. As such, Dutch businesses actually saw a brief period of economic boom after the start of the occupation, although within just a year, there would be a sharp decline as Germany demanded more and more resources harnessed for its continuing war effort. However, for Holland's Jewish population, things were very different. Soon, anti-Semitic laws were imposed on the Dutch people, something Hanny, being a strong believer in human rights, was fundamentally opposed to. This led Hanny to her first act of resistance against the Nazis. All Dutch citizens had to carry identification papers with them, and those papers of Jewish citizens were marked with a large J to single them out. This severely limited them in how they could live their lives in occupied Holland, as well as making them targets for assault or arrest by German soldiers. Thus, Hanny went to a local swimming pool and stole two IDs for two of her Jewish friends she had met at university. Back in Hanny's hometown of Harlem, there were others doing their part to resist the Nazi occupation and help Jews escape persecution. Living in a small house in the working class area of the city was one Trentier van der Molen and her three children. Trentier was anything but an orthodox woman for the period, being strong-willed and having a strong sense of social justice and politics. Having divorced her husband, itself an unusual situation for a woman in 1930s Holland, she raised her two girls and one boy on strongly socialist principles, eventually becoming part of a growing communist movement in Holland. She was especially insistent that her two daughters, Freddy and Tros Overstegen, stand up for the oppressed and to fight injustice, believing in the communist dream of universal suffrage. To that end, she also kept herself and her children keenly aware of events happening around the world, such as the rise of fascism in Italy and Germany, and the Spanish Civil War, which raged between 1936 and 1939, with the girls even sending dolls they had made themselves to Spanish children displaced by the fighting. 
As the 1930s drew to a close, they became more hands-on with helping people escape persecution. Holland, like many European countries, soon found itself taking in a number of refugees from Germany as Hitler began purging the country of so-called undesirables. Despite their relatively small dwelling in Harlem, they nevertheless began taking in fellow communists from Germany as part of an effort known as Red Aid. Later, they also started taking in Jews who had fled Hitler's security services and their expenses with those refugees taught them valuable lessons in keeping secrets from the authorities or groups who may wish to do them harm for their kindness. This would of course become a valuable skill later when Hitler invaded. Truss Overstegen recalled later that when Jewish families would stay with them, they often participated in the Jewish practice of lighting candles every Friday and felt humbled to be able to share in this tradition. It was not long before the two Overstegen girls, both still only teenagers, with Truss being 16 and Freddie 14, became embroiled in resisting Nazi occupation. On April 30th, 1941, traditionally a Dutch holiday known as Queen's Day, they began their resistance activities. As Freddie later recalled, we handed out a leaflet with a slogan on it, something like, the Netherlands must be free and long live the queen. We also glued warnings across German posters in the streets calling for men to work in Germany, saying, don't go to Germany. For every Dutch man working in Germany, a German man will go to the front and then we'd hurry off on our bikes. The girls would also frequently join their mother in distributing anti-Nazi leaflets and pro-communist newsletters as part of an effort to encourage further resistance amongst their countrymen. While this work may not seem as exciting or heroic as the assassinations and sabotage the resistance groups of Europe are known for, the danger involved was just as high. Getting caught by occupation forces distributing such material could have seen the girls handed over to the Gestapo, where they would have been tortured for information and then killed, regardless of their age. Very soon, the usefulness of the two girls for more active roles in opposing the Nazis was recognized by their local resistance leader, Franz Vanderveel, head of the Council of Resistance, which had ties to the Dutch Communist Party. Vanderveel approached the girl's mother and asked for her permission to allow the girls to be trained in firearms, explosives, and sabotage. When she saw how desperately the girls wanted to get involved, she agreed, stating that it was a necessity for her girls to fight their fascist oppressors. Their mother made only one demand of them, that they should do whatever the resistance asks of them, but never lose their humanity in the process. Thus the sisters and five other new recruits began their education out in the woods, where they were trained not just to fight Germans, but Dutch collaborators. Upon completion of this training, they went to work and initially acted as couriers, carrying messages between different resistance groups. Women enjoyed a greater degree of anonymity when dealing with the German soldiers, who, at least initially, viewed men as being the predominant members of the resistance. This was especially the case for the girls who made themselves look and act very childlike, only further throwing off suspicion that they were working for the resistance. However, over time, 
Their usefulness in other capacities was soon recognized, and their duties increased to include helping smuggle Jewish children past checkpoints, as young girls walking with children was not an uncommon or suspicious sight. They also undertook work at a resistance hospital, where they tended to those who couldn't go to regular hospitals without being discovered by the Nazis and arrested. Eventually, it was time for them to get more hands-on in the fighting, but again using their youthful feminine looks to their advantage. They were soon used to distract guards while resistance members started fires or planted bombs at German and government facilities. Then Truss was asked to help lure an officer in the SS who had been marked for assassination out of town. As Freddy later explained, Truss had met him in an expensive bar, seduced him, and then took him for a walk in the woods. She was like, want to go for a stroll? And of course he wanted to. Then they ran into someone, which was made to seem a coincidence, but he was one of ours. And that friend said to Truss, girl, you know you're not supposed to be here. They apologized, turned round, and walked away. And then shots were fired, so that the man never knew what hit him. They had already dug the hole, but we weren't allowed to be there for that part. Although they didn't pull the trigger themselves that day, the girls were now actively engaged in fighting the German occupation forces and their collaborators. When Freddy was given her first target, it was not a German, but a traitor. Truss later recalled the killing. It was tragic and very difficult, and we cried about it afterwards. We did not feel it suited us. It never suits anybody unless they are real criminals. One loses everything. It poisons the beautiful things in life. Yet despite the emotion that came from killing, the girls pushed on, becoming prolific assassins. One method they perfected was for the girls to ride on a bike, one cycling while the other rode on the back. When their target was out in the open and no one was around, they would shoot them and carry on cycling, masquerading as just two innocent girls out for a bike ride. The girls also actively participated in the bombing of a railway line outside of Harlem. Back in Amsterdam, things for Hanny Shaft under Nazi occupation were becoming more and more unbearable. When in the spring of 1943, all Dutch students were required to take an oath of loyalty to Nazi Germany and its Fuhrer Adolf Hitler, it was too much, and she joined 80% of her fellow student body in refusing. She thus immediately lost her place at university and so made her way home to Harlem. Knowing her left-wing and anti-Nazi sympathies, it was not long before she was approached to join the resistance group. Hanny agreed to join, but was dismayed that they intended to use her as a courier and demanded that she be allowed to fight. The resistance leaders, possibly encouraged by the success of the Overstegen sisters, decided to give her a chance to prove herself as an assassin, and she was told to meet up with a contact who would guide her to a man they had marked for death. As the target approached, her contact handed her a gun, and when the opportunity presented itself, he told her to shoot. Without any hesitation, Hanny raised the gun at the man and fired, but nothing happened. Hanny frantically fired again and again as the man started walking towards them, but each time, 
All the gun did was produce a clicking sound. It was then that it was revealed to her that it had all been a test and that her target was in fact a high-ranking member of the resistance. Annie was furious over the deception, but her anger was abated when she was told that she had passed the test and that next time the target would be real and the gun loaded. Thus, Hanny joined the Overstegen sisters, carrying out, among other vital duties, assassinations, or liquidations as they referred to them. While the ultimate goal was of course to lift Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, their targets remained primarily fellow Dutch citizens who were actively collaborating with the Germans. They especially targeted members of the NSB, the Dutch Nazi party, of which around 3% of the adult male population in 1940 were members. The NSB routinely rounded up Jews, communists, and other undesirables for their German masters, and so limiting their ability to function and any support from the wider community was top priority. Not all of their shootings were pre-planned, however. On one occasion, Truss observed a Dutch SS soldier take a baby from a terrified family he was questioning and smash her head against a wall. Horrified and enraged, she took out her pistol and shot the soldier dead. She knew this wouldn't bring the child back or ease the family's pain, but felt there was some sort of justice for them. Sadly though, the risk was not confined to themselves. In retaliation for many activities of the resistance, the Germans would frequently round people up on the streets and publicly execute them. This was intended to punish the resistance and discourage public support for them, although often it had the opposite effect. When she was later asked about her feelings concerning such reprisals, Truss said, I'm afraid about the wrong interference that if the resistance had not done these things, then no innocent people would have been shot. But what about the six million Jews? Weren't they innocent people? Killing them was no act of reprisal. We were not terrorists. The real act of terror was kidnapping and executing people after the resistance act. The girls always demonstrated enormous courage and conviction in support of their cause, only ever refusing an assignment once. The case in question was a plan to kidnap the children of Seiss Inkhart, the man the Germans put in charge of Holland, and offer to trade their safe return in exchange for a number of their own people being held in German custody. The reason for declining the mission was that if Seiss Inkhart or Hitler refused, they would have to shoot the children, and that they would not stand for. According to the sisters, Hanni said to them after the plan was proposed, we are no Hitlerites. Resistance fighters don't murder children. Unfortunately for the girls, not every assassination attempt went according to plan. One night, Truss was awoken to a pounding at the door to find Hanny in tears. Truss tried to calm her down with a glass of water, most of which she spilled with her trembling hands. Earlier that day, Hanny, along with another resistance member named Jan Bunkamp, had targeted a Dutch police captain named William M. Ragut. Both resistance fighters were on bicycles as they approached their target, with Hanny pulling up alongside him and shooting him before cycling away. Jan then took out his own weapon, wanting to make sure the man was dead, but to his shock, Ragut was alive and shot Jan in the abdomen. In the commotion from the crowd that followed the shooting, 
there was no way Hanny could help her comrade, and so guilt-ridden, she cycled away. Truss and Hanny went to the nearby hospital, where Jam was being treated, but found he was under heavy guard by the SS. Under interrogation at the hospital, Jan refused to give away any information, regardless of any threats made against him. Eventually, the NSB sent in two women disguised as nurses and pretending to be members of the resistance to speak to him, a ruse that Jan fell for, and he gave up Hanny's name before he passed away. The next day, her parents were arrested and sent to a concentration camp in Southern Holland. This was clearly part of a trap for Hanny, who had become known to the Germans and the NSB as simply the girl with the red hair, after she had been briefly spotted participating in a previous assassination. A distraught Hanny wanted to turn herself in to free her parents, but Freddy and Truss pleaded with her not to, telling her that even if she did, they would not only kill her, but her parents too, as a warning to others. Once she had recovered from her depression, Hanny threw herself into resistance work with even more conviction than she had ever shown, either as a way of coping with the thought of what her parents were having to go through, or as a way of taking revenge. She volunteered for many assignments that came down the pipeline, often accompanied by the Overstegen sisters, and continued her vital courier work. Now that she was known to the Germans, she decided to dye her hair jet black and wore glasses to disguise herself while operating under the name of Joanna Elderkamp. Eventually, the Germans were satisfied that her parents knew nothing of her whereabouts or activities, and released them when it became clear Hanny would not be surrendering anytime soon. On Tuesday, 5th of September, 1944, news began circling across occupied Holland that the people had been waiting to hear for over four years. Allied troops breaking out from the Normandy landings in June had now crossed the border and were liberating Holland. It would turn out to be a false report, but shortly afterwards, Allied troops invaded for real and were slowly bleeding the German army to death. This was a crucial time for the resistance as they stepped up their campaigns, not only to hamper the German army's efforts to fight off the allies, but also to stop members of the NSB and other collaborators from disappearing amongst the chaos. By March of 1944, the end of the war was clearly in sight, with huge areas of Holland already liberated. British, Canadian, and Polish forces, which had by this time crossed into Germany from France, were circling back to attack remaining German troops from within Germany itself. Yet despite this, the girls continued to do their vital resistance work, determined to do so up to the very last minute. Then, on the evening of March 21st, 1945, Hanny, posing as Joanna, was smuggling some copies of the underground newspaper called The Truth in her bicycle when she was stopped by two German soldiers at a checkpoint in Harlem. Her luck had finally run out as they discovered the newspapers and a pistol she had tried to conceal in her bag. She was swiftly arrested, and her captors began to suspect she was the much sought-after girl with the red hair. They began an investigation, which included torture, but she never broke, insisting she was Joanna, 
They even brought in pro-Nazi civilians who had claimed to know Hanny or had witnessed her assassinations. But it was not until days after being imprisoned that their suspicions were confirmed when her natural red hair began appearing at the roots. Fearing for their friend and comrade in arms, Truss reportedly concocted a plan to rescue her, but without the resources to carry out a raid on a heavily defended SS installation, it all came to nothing. Despite all efforts to extract information from Hanny, she never betrayed her friends. And so upon the orders of Hitler himself, on April 17th, 1945, Hanny Schaft was led out to be shot. The exact story of what happened at her execution varies from source to source, but the general tale has nonetheless fallen into Dutch folklore and follows that an SS officer fired the first shot. However, this shot, which was aimed at her head, only grazed her temple and sent Hanny to the floor, where she defiantly declared, idiots, I shoot better. Some accounts state that either another SS or NSB soldier then walked up to her and shot her execution style with a pistol, while other accounts have her riddled with bullets from a submachine gun. Regardless of which is true, Hanny Shaft, the girl with the red hair, was dead. Just 18 days later, the German army surrendered to the Allies and the war in Europe was over. Immediately after the war, members of the Dutch resistance searched the sand dunes for bodies of their comrades buried there, finding over 400, including Hanny's, which had been left in a shallow grave. She was exhumed, and on November 27, 1945, she was given a state funeral presided over by Queen Wilhelmina herself, who described Hanny as the symbol of Dutch resistance. However, despite all she had done for their freedom, the Dutch people would quickly lose their adoration for her in the post-war period. Due to her socialist beliefs, she was heralded as a Dutch communist hero, but communism in Holland would soon lose popular support, as details of what the Soviet Union under Stalin were doing in Eastern Europe became public. Communism in Holland thus fell into the same category as fascism, as something destructive and to be feared, and so commemorations for Hanny were, for a time, banned. But they couldn't stop them all. Freddy and Truus Overstegen survived the war and never forgot about their fearless friend. Days before Hanny's state funeral, the now 22-year-old Truss married a man named Piet Menger, and when they discovered their first child was a girl, they named her Hanny in honor of their fallen comrade. In the decades that followed the war, they kept theirs and Hanny's stories alive by regularly speaking at events intended to promote tolerance and educate people on the truth about war and the Holocaust. However, there was one question they were frequently asked which they never answered, and that was, how many people did they kill? They simply replied that it was a question you should never ask a soldier. Truss also became a prolific sculptor, and in 1982, she unveiled a sculpture of Hanny, which was placed in their home city of Harlem. The sisters also formed the Hanny Shaft Memorial Foundation to get her formally recognized as a Dutch hero once again. And thanks to their efforts, since the 1990s on the last Sunday of every November, Holland commemorates the girl with the red hair. On June 18th, 2016, Truss Overstegen passed away, aged 93. 
Freddy followed two years later on September 5th, 2018, less than a day before her own 93rd birthday. Speaking of the three girls, a researcher at the Netherlands Institute for War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies said, they were unusual, these girls. There were a lot of women involved in the resistance in the Netherlands, but not so much in the way these girls were. 